0: Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space.
1: So this week on the podcast, I have Josh Carlyle. Welcome, Josh. Hi, how's it going? It's going great. uh, Thanks for taking time to come on the show this week. You and I have met a long, long time ago, as seems to be a a recurring theme with everybody I know these days. It's been a while. So uh,
0: for for those who haven't
1: heard of who you are, why don't
0: you give us a quick intro of who you are, what you do? Sure. Uh, So my name is Josh Carlisle. Uh, I'm actually based out of Raleigh, North Carolina. So I've been in this industry now for, oh God, I'm starting to feel a little old, about 20 years. Uh, so uh, back in the uh, started out in the back in the original dot com days, you know VB5 coms, MTS stuff. Uh, kind of embarrassing to admit how far back that goes. Uh, but actually, uh, you know, I spent over a decade uh, in the SharePoint world, where I was pretty active with the community, uh, especially in some of the you know early years with SharePoint Saturdays, participating in a lot of those. Uh, but that actually led me to my focus of the last few years, which is actually Azure, uh, and eventually to uh, my MVP award in Azure. So I've had a good bit of focus with Azure and. Uh, especially with Azure Functions and uh, the serverless community and serverless space. Uh, my day job, I work for AppDynamics, which is actually part of Cisco. So we build an APM, which is Application uh, Performance uh, Monitoring. And uh, I help our customers implement AppDynamics on Azure during the day
1: that's great. And, and your, your discussion there about serverless and Azure is what led me to reach out because we've had, obviously over the years, we've talked a lot about the Microsoft 365 developer space and a lot of that ends up being the cloud offerings. And and we mention often about doing something in functions, but we really haven't gone into detail of what that is. So I thought we'd uh, give our, our audience a, a little uh, expert opinion, if you will, about what they are and, and how they do. So I guess uh, let's start. At the beginning, just for those who may not know anything, what is Azure Functions and
0: what is serverless? So what is Azure Functions? So Really, what is Azure Functions has evolved a lot since uh, since it came around around 2017. Uh, but just for the sake of like furthering the conversation here, you know, Azure Functions uh, is of course a well-known serverless platform on Azure. Uh, so you know, the word serverless in and of itself is it's fairly overloaded, uh, uh, and you will find lots of academic arguments of what serverless is uh, on uh, on Twitter and other uh, social media outlets. But generally speaking, uh, serverless is has a few kind of key attributes, right? It's, you know, you only pay for what you use, right? You don't manage the servers. So obviously with serverless, there are servers, but the point is, and and I liked, and I heard this a while back ago, I can't remember who said this, but you think about servers less right? Uh, and then lastly, it's the elastic nature of the elasticity so that it can kind of scale to meet your demands. Uh, now, of course, there's a lot of other things that go along with that. What I like to say is a lot of people have a kind of an overloaded uh, definition of serverless. I like to bake it down to those kind of core three elements, because once you get start getting past that, you start getting into the world of vendor-specific attributes of serverless, right? How AWS does serverless, how Azure does serverless, how Google, does serverless right? Uh, obviously, for today's talk, we're going to be talking about Azure Functions, uh, but there's obviously a broader ecosystem of serverless. So you may see some competing and differentiating difference uh, of opinion than what I uh, what I share with you today.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's great. And I, I know that uh, uh, based on your definition, right? We do know there are some other products built on top of that, right? So just to to round out the ecosystem, right? So Azure, I'm sorry, Power Automate is in theory a serverless type of thing, right? In Logic Apps?
0: Yeah, so that's, I like to call it like the serverless spectrum, right? So there are things that are, are have serverless attributes and there are things that have some serverless attributes and maybe not. Uh, there are definitely some different other categories of serverless platforms on Azure. Uh, common one is Logic Apps, which is uh, for all you Flow fans out there. Uh, that's actually the platform that Flow sits on, right? Uh, that's a declarative platform for serverless. You're not necessarily writing code, uh, but it definitely has a lot of your serverless attributes. It'll scale to meet your needs. You only pay for what you use. And and you're obviously not managing servers. Uh, Azure Automation is a big one. Uh, I am almost positive, uh, I think Azure Automation is being deprecated these days. Uh, so that is going the way to Dodo. It's going to still be around for a while, I think, but there's definitely some, some uh, automation and some of your Azure batch is another kind of common uh, piece where you just kind of run in pieces of code. Uh, but once again, it kind of falls into that serverless spectrum where there's some serverless attributes, but you're still playing maybe around with a little bit of servers or you're still paying a little bit more for when you're not using it and things like that.
1: Okay, and and so why would I want to consider using serverless capabilities instead of a, a server myself?
0: Sure. So I think at the end of the day, it's really about removing distractions, right, and letting you really focus on what's important. Uh, you know, your code and, and the business problem you're so- trying to solve. You know, when you're focusing on the code and not the infrastructure, uh, uh, you know, and you get to, and you also get some benefits along the way, like you know, great scaling cost benefits. But really, it's the efficiency and the productivity you get by just focusing on the code. I think. For those folks who are in the development space or in the IT space, uh, it's probably not uncommon to have stories where you're implementing a solution or an application and especially in the in, you know the good old glory days, right, with uh, when we were on premise and and building VMs and building machines, where the first half of your project was all about infrastructure, <laughs> uh, and then it was all about trying to figure out and estimate what your infrastructure needs might be, right, and then ha- building your application to meet those needs and the different ways you can build application to meet those needs. So at the end of the day, you're spending a lot of time and a lot of effort at the end of the, and and also a lot of money, right, uh, on, on things to just implement. What you're trying to do, right? Uh, and and that's where you get the advantage of serverless, and that's actually how I really entered the serverless space. So, as I mentioned, I, I, I'm coming from the SharePoint world originally, right? So, I spent over a decade at SharePoint on-premise on the developer side. And I was there at the beginning of the journey when folks were starting to implement BPOS in the early days of Office 365, right? And uh, during those implementations, people were moving to Office 365, but they still needed things like APIs, right, for, little, uh, for, for, for UI elements. They still needed what timer jobs did for them historically, right? And, and and those became a really, really good match for especially for the early days of Azure Functions where I could write something and schedule it in an Azure Function and it would run on a scheduled basis just like a timer job. If I had, and I was building a, a web part, right? And that web part needed to access to an API. In the past, I may have deployed that on-prem, uh, but now I deploy that through an Azure Function. And the the the, Among the many advantages of it, what was attractive to me at the time is, you know, a lot of these projects, uh, we didn't want to spin up VMs. We didn't want to spin up servers. We had a business need. We had to do something. We had to get something done, and the second we needed to engage with the formal IT process of building out servers and getting that going. Uh, uh, it was just a big distraction. We were able to implement solutions really, really quickly with Azure Functions. And, and, and that also applies to the rest of the serverless world as well, but in particular with, uh, with Azure Functions on, uh, on Azure. Okay. okay, so I get that uh, if I need to run
1: some, some code that maybe doesn't work in the browser the, that functions can and solve that. And then the, the big concern I always always have to take a, a moment to think about is I could I could have a web application or I could have certain, uh, functions. So the, I, I'm guessing there's some overlap there, right? Is there a, is this a typical it depends answer as to why you would pick one or the other?
0: <laughs> the answer is yes to both. So it depends, and there is overlap. Uh, so the one, uh, the one aspect of Azure Functions that you'll have to get used to with right away is that it is a framework, right? Uh, so Azure Functions, uh, ironically, is both a framework and a service. Uh, so the framework itself, the Azure Functions runtime, is actually open source, uh, and and then the service it deploys on is also called Azure Functions, which is which is actually part of the a little bit of the evolving nature of Azure Functions. So because you can actually deploy. Azure Functions outside Azure, you can deploy it to Kubernetes, you can deploy it on-premise. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, it's a framework they're working with. Now that framework, you can we Azure Functions has various languages that support to build that framework on things like .NET, Java, J- uh, JavaScript, Java, Python, and even PowerShell, which I'll go into in a second, which has some interesting opportunities for our Office 365 folks. Uh, but uh, so you can kind of pick your language, but it's also a framework. So if you are used to, for example, build building traditional ASP.NET applications, like a web UI, right, or an API. Uh, the web UI would still need a place to live. Uh, Azure Functions, although there are some, some use cases where you can do some interesting things to serve up UIs, in general, uh, it is not for the UI layer. It's for your API layer, for your backend process layer, right? That's the first thing is, is that you will, you can't really take an existing ASP.NET application, which is a common request. Hey, I have this web API I built in ASP.NET and I just want to run it in Azure Functions. You're not going to be able to do that. Now, you're going to be able to reuse a good bit of the code, right? Uh, But to take advantage of Azure Functions, you're going to have to adopt that Azure Functions framework, right? Uh, but there are, definitely are some distinct advantages, right? So if you're not in the Azure Functions world and you are uh, deploying traditional web applications, you're not going to get those other benefits. For example, you're going to essentially pay to keep the lights on, right? So if you have a an application that isn't used very often or an API that isn't used very often, uh, regardless of how much it's used, uh, you're going to pay for that, right, just to keep the lights on. And and the the opposite is true if, <laughs> if your application is very popular, right, and you don't of capacity, you're gonna be able to have to handle that. So there's definitely some good things that you get along with just a little bit of what we'll call technical debt, I would call it.
1: Yeah, okay, and, and, yeah, and so if I have a web API controller, obviously all the routing and stuff that happens as part of the, the .asp.net framework doesn't necessarily apply in functions. I really just focus on my code and, and configure the inputs in the functions app, right? So it, it, uh, yeah, I can see the, the, the use case there. Now, um, you mentioned the thing, that the next thing that caught my attention there was, you said, you know, if it's really popular, it scales, right? So how, how does functions help me deal with this haphazard nature of maybe it's not too popular or maybe it's crazy busy for some reason?
0: So obviously one of the core attributes of serverless is some of the elasticity elements to it. And it scales because at its core, Azure Functions is event-based. So uh, some people refer to it as a FaaS framework uh, function as a service, right? But it is all event-based within the Azure Functions world we call them triggers, right? And so it has various things that can be triggered. For most users, when they're first uh, getting introduced to Azure Functions, they'll fall back to like an HTTP trigger, right? So an HTTP request is an event. Uh, uh, other triggers are that are really popular are timer triggers, right? So something that is on a scheduled basis. So an event, because it's 2 in the afternoon, you want to execute some code, right? Uh, there's also some other uh, uh, triggers based on on queues and service bus and things like that, along with some, some other bindings as well. But because because they're based on events, the Azure Functions environment, uh, behind the scenes they, they call it something called the scale controller, uh, but uh, um, the Azure Functions environment, because it can see events coming, coming in, it inherently understands how much uh, uh, um, Back end, how much processing power that you need. Uh, a prime example is queues, right? So if you're dropping a message in a queue because you want it to be processed, and that's a very, very common pattern uh, in the serverless world is, is processing via queue, dumping a message in a queue, and letting it, getting it processed asynchronously later on. Uh, but if there are, for example, 500 messages in a queue versus 10,000 messages in a queue, behind the scenes, Azure Functions is going to understand, hey, I need some more processing power for this. So it's going to go ahead and spin up some more instances behind the scenes. And the opposite is true. As it's seeing requests go down, uh, it'll start scaling back those instances. And Servos has a, a, a concept of something called scale to zero, which means that at the end of the day, if there's nothing to process, if there's no events coming, there's no HTTP requests, there's no queue uh, messages coming in, uh, whatever the trigger may be, it actually goes down to zero instances. And that's how you're able to achieve some of the cost savings of you only pay for what you Use. Now there is some downsides that come with that as well. So as things are scaling up and scaling down, uh, when things scale down to zero, there's actually no instances behind the scenes. So when a new request comes in, we have this thing called a cold start, uh, which is actually a less of a deal than people make it out to be, especially in the Azure Functions world. But cold starts refers as to, to when a request comes in and everything's cold, and we need to spin up a request, and so that can oftentimes delay the response by a few seconds as things are spinning up and you you hear a lot about cold starts uh, within the serverless community. Uh, it's more of an issue when it comes to uh, serverless platforms uh, with other vendors, things like AWS Lambda, uh, just because of how um, the infrastructure runs behind the scenes between the different vendors is, is very different. The impact of cold starts on Azure Functions is a little bit lesser, uh, but it's still there, right? Uh, but in return for that occasional cold start, And there's some ways to mitigate that, but in return for that occasional cold start, you get all the scaling uh, and the cost savings that come with Azure Functions.
1: Yeah, and I guess that's a typical pattern we've had about performance forever. You, You write the code and you deploy it and you measure it, and if it's unacceptable, you look at the measurements and figure out where I can tweak, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and, and once again, in, in, interesting enough, you know, when in in, tr- in the traditional model, uh, you spend a lot of time as a developer making optimizations and sometimes making proactive optimizations when you didn't, didn't need to because you're so constrained by the infrastructure that you're spending a lot of time making sure that you're squeezing every ounce of performance out of it that you can. Uh, now, though, of course, there's still some advantages doing that today. You want to build a well-performing system. Uh, but when it comes to the ability for the platform behind the scenes to scale to meet your needs, you're not spending as much time and as much effort trying to make those little tiny little performance improvements to your application. And instead, you're spending time actually adding business value right to your app. Yeah. Okay.
1: You mentioned back how uh, functions became very appealing to SharePoint folks. And I did, in fact, create uh, Azure functions back in the day that does some SharePoint processing. Uh, but that was obviously quite some time ago. And so I know there was a couple announcement that might have been around Ignite timeframe or so that they uh, have a new version of the platform. Can you give us an idea of what basically maybe, what's the state of the state, if you will? And and and
0: you mentioned a couple different languages, what, what are those that we can use? Sure. So Azure Functions uh, 1.0 was released, I think, back in 2017. That was essentially .NET framework, and there was some hooks for JavaScript in there, and is essentially like a Windows only platform. Uh, 2.0 got released at the previous Ignite, so that was. Uh, ignite before last. And 2.0 was different because it was built on uh, uh, .NET Core, right? And so it's built on .NET Core 2.0. That is probably the most popular version that is out there today. Uh, And one of the advantages of it being built on .NET Core and some of the advantages brought to the 2.0 runtime is it also made it easier to introduce uh, additional languages uh, from, uh, from, uh, from an engineering standpoint on the platform. And so we started seeing a growth of additional languages and so beyond.NET .NET and .NET Core, and, and it's worth mentioning for the few in the community who enjoy like F-Sharp, uh, that includes uh, informal support for F-Sharp. Uh, there's no developer tooling for it, but it does support F-Sharp. But we have things like JavaScript and TypeScript, uh, uh, and that may line up well with uh, a lot of our you know, SharePoint development world that has, has gone on and, and, and now spends their time in SPFx and spend their time in TypeScript. Right? They may feel comfortable with TypeScript. Uh, also, also supports Java. In python uh, the biggest uh, uh, the biggest uh, probably the draw for python is some of the machine learning aspects of it so uh, that's a little bit of a niche uh, but is growing in popularity as well but i think the exciting thing that came out of the last ignite just a couple months ago was that powershell now went ga so formal support by powershell uh, now it had powershell support prior to that uh, but in actuality i i believe the history of it it was basically it was labeled experimental and i think it was an interns project quite honestly <laughs> uh, uh, which I, it was experimental a lot, for a while soft, i remember right? that <laughs> yeah, it was experimental for quite a while and and there were quite a few reasons why it was experimental but they did get feedback and you know the azure functions team is really great on receiving feedback and kind of responding to community needs and requests and they're like hey everybody was really wanted powershell and, and and there's a reason for that you know there are a lot of things especially through automation and especially when it comes to i mean think about office 365 and sharepoint administration who live in the world of PowerShell, right? And and they're very comfortable with PowerShell, and they'd love to be able to just essentially have scheduled tasks written in PowerShell, written in the language they know. Well, with PowerShell being GA now, there's a really great story there. So even though historically, I think, you know, Azure Functions has been attractive to developers who write code, there's a new and growing community of uh, of administrators who are using PowerShell uh, uh, within Azure Functions to automate a lot of commentary tasks. I know I have uh, some more of our IT-focused Azure uh, co-workers who are using PowerShell today uh, within Azure Functions to do things like clean up demo environments and, and, and clean up Test environments and and do automate scheduled tasks within Azure, and the same thing obviously could apply to Office 365, right? Scheduled tasks, things like that. So uh, um, definitely a a win from, from the standpoint of of the SharePoint and Office 365 community and 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 and. Pretty popular,
1: yeah, and I guess that the, their move to .NET Core kind of enabled that because PowerShell Core now was based on that, so it kind of lights that all up together, right? Yeah, and and uh, to tie in with a, co- a previous episode over that we had on the podcast, or with uh, with there now being a PowerShell module for the Microsoft Graph, you can see even more scenarios I see being happening. So that's good to see that. So. The, the second time I had to stick my neck in the functions, I found this thing called uh, durable entities or durable functions. Have, have you worked with those? I have. So do you have a good way to explain that to folks?
0: <laughs> yeah. So think of it as code-based workflows. Code-based orchestrators. Uh, I actually do a couple talks on on durable functions and and the newer durable entities, uh, which is kind of like an actor-based uh, framework, a little bit more difficult to describe. Uh, but durable durable functions themselves. Uh, and this is this is I'll go back to my initial statement that there are there are uh, some folks who prescribe certain attributes of serverless. And one of the common attributes of uh, that people uh, subscribe to serverless is that it's stateless, meaning that there is no state in between requests. Uh, uh, and that's for very specific reasons, and, and mostly because of the platforms that serverless write-on. But that doesn't mean that they actually have to be stateless. It's just a limit. It's just an historic limitation of most serverless platforms. So one of the one of the uh, interesting things that the Azure Functions team saw was that wouldn't it be great if we could... Uh, we saw a com- They saw a common pattern, which is really, really popular within Azure Functions where you're chaining functions together. Uh, so one of the limitations uh, that is currently within, I shouldn't say it's a current limitation, but a a common limitation, I should say, and I'll I'll, I'll quantify that in a second, but a common limitation is execution times uh, that you traditionally have with the standard consumption plan that we have with Azure Functions, and that means that things can't execute for more than five minutes. Uh, There's a little setting there, and you can pop it up to 10 minutes, but 10 minutes is the max. Anything runs for more than 10 minutes, it dies. Yeah, and so that's actually the scenario
1: that, that I ran into where I needed to, I was querying all the users in a tenant, and so you get, I don't know, 100 at a time, or whatever the limit is, and then you get a, a, a URL that says, here's the next page, so call the next page, and it wouldn't finish in time, so I was stuck, right? So yeah, that's a, that's a very common constraint people run
0: into, and so how, how does this help us fix it? <laughs> So, so durable functions fixes that by by you know, the architecture I was referring to is is you break things down into tasks, you break things down into more smaller elements, right? But then you also all, you, all of a sudden you're introduced with the complexity of coordinating those elements. So, in your exact use case, let's say you're processing hundreds of users, right? Let's say you have 500 users, and you're looping through all those users, and under normal uh, under a normal process. It's, it's going to last, it's going to take longer than five minutes, so Azure Functions kills the process and, and you're out of luck. So what do you do? You break those down into different pieces. You say, okay, I'm going to process these 10, these 10, and these 10. Well, then you have to manage what happens when when they're all done. You have to keep track of that. You have to coordinate it and you have to orchestrate it, right? Uh, because now you have all these moving bits and you have to figure out what's happening. Well, that sounds a lot like a workflow, doesn't it, right? You're doing all these activities and you're, and you're trying to coordinate it. And that's where durable function comes into play. It takes some of those common in use cases, things like what they call fan out, which is super common, which is more what I'm referring to, where you have a lot, a lot of tasks and you send them all out, say, go do all these at once and use all the powers of serverless, spin up as many instances you need, process these and let me know when you're done. Or even more complex, I have these 10,000 things to process, but I need them done in some sort of order, or I need them batched in some sort of order. And durable functions is a way of, of implementing those workflows in code, but without breaking the tenets of serverless. And behind the scenes, it's still doing all the things that you would have done in days past with Putting things in a queue and keeping track of what things are in a queue, uh, but all of that is taken care of for you automatically by durable functions. Behind the scenes, it's still it's using some storage mechanisms, it's using some queues. So it's once again it's not breaking the the, the quote unquote tenets of serverless, and you're able to get past some of the traditional timeouts and resource limitations of serverless. Uh, but you can do it in a very very friendly way uh, and do that through code. Uh, and so durable functions once it, that's is actually one of those interesting projects that. I believe that was either an internal hackathon or once again, a, uh, a pet project of somebody's, right? It had such uh, popularity to it that they formally, formally became part of Azure Functions. And now we're, I think as of, the latest Ignite, I think we're in Durable Functions 2.0, which also includes Durable Entities, which is kind of related to Durable Functions, uh, and, it's, and it's, it's relying on that same special infrastructure behind the scenes. Uh, but Durable Entities is just a, a, another way of maintaining state, right? It's another way of saying, hey, I have a, for example, a customer, and that customer has a uh, shopping cart, and I want to increase in what's in that shopping cart, right? And I, it allows me to work with data. It allows me to work with data and state to the concept of an entity, right? And behind the scenes, that's all the all the details of that are abstracted away for me. But once again, we're going back and we're doing stateful things in Azure Functions in serverless, uh, uh, but in an easy way. Yeah, and the the moral of the story, from my
1: point of view, is that I. I... Can tell the by writing the durable entity in different function, multiple functions, so to speak, it, it kind of breaks that five-minute barrier, right? So it does some work, and then it stops, and then it starts a new instance, so you don't have that five-minute time constraint. So it actually is pretty helpful. So that's re- really pretty slick stuff. Absolutely. Now, um, you know, so we talked before, uh, a bit about... about uh, t- triggers or, or events, right? But um, last I looked, there was uh, some, even some social media things in there. So what's the state of the world on different triggers? Do, do I have to write
0: my own or do things come along for free or or how, how widespread do you see it? From a conceptual standpoint, Azure Functions have, have two ways of interacting with events and data, and that's triggers and bindings. Uh, triggers are essentially what Azure decides to give us uh, so we're we are fully dependent on on um on Azure and the Azure Functions team to to implement triggers for us. Now the common ones are all covered and and there are ways to work around areas where you want to be triggered by something that maybe the Azure Functions team hadn't thought of or maybe it's something unique to you. Uh, But essentially it's a trigger, it's it's the piece that kicks off the execution of your code. Now the interesting part is what you're referring to with some of our bindings are, bindings are just essentially a shortcut, a a simplified way of doing some common repetitive tasks uh, within Azure Functions and they're essentially saving you sometimes a dozen, sometimes dozens, sometimes hundreds of lines of code. Uh, some of the common bindings are things that working with storage and working with queues and working with blobs. Uh, and there are a lot of out-of-the-box bindings. And there are also some community bindings that allow you to do really interesting things, like uh, uh, like working with Twitter, right, or working with Graph. Graph has some bindings as well, so uh, working with entities in Graph. Uh, so there are a lot of bindings out there, uh, and many of them are supported and developed by the Azure Functions team, and some of them are actually uh, done by the community itself. Uh, but once again, those are they're, they're kind of a, a a shortcut way and builds on the overall theme of productivity, right, within Azure Functions, concentrating your code, making your code simpler, concentrating things that actually bring business value. There isn't a lot of business value in writing the same 30 lines of code if you're interacting with a queue every single time, just use the binding. Uh, and it'll take care of a lot of those those details for you. Uh, but once again, now the interesting thing is we mentioned a little bit about Logic Apps, right, and Flow. And, and even though you might think that is a one of those either or kind of conversations. There are a lot of actual use cases, a lot of scenarios where they work really well together. You mentioned Twitter. Uh, so Logic Apps actually has, technically speaking, a lot more what you would consider triggers, way of waking up and executing some code. And, and of those, you know, you can Twitter is one of them. But what happens if you're in Logic Apps, and the same thing applies to Flow as well, where you run into a blocker where it's like, okay, I can't implement this, what I'm trying to do, Without code, right? I can get I can get like 80% there, right? Through just declarative stuff, building a flow, building a logic app, reacting to uh, something happening on Twitter. Uh, but I just need if I could just write that 10 lines of code. I can't tell you how many times in the past where I worked with with platforms, declarative platforms, things like InfoPath, right? For those for those folks who remember InfoPath, uh, uh, <laughs> or really like workflow, right? SharePoint Designer workflows. Think about how many times in the past you're like, oh. I could do this in 10 lines of code, right? Well, with the integration between Logic Apps Flow and Azure Functions, that can actually become a reality. You can get all the productivity out of that declarative workflow and be where maybe where you're comfortable at or where something something somebody else developed, but then you can drop down with native integration with Azure Functions and say, just execute these 10 lines of code, right? Uh, and so there's actually a pretty good story uh, for some cross-pollinization between some of the different service platforms on Azure. Yeah, so moral of the story is write
1: a web service, and then uh, you can get to it from a lot of different places, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, and once again, that, that goes back to my, my early days, right? My, my origin story, as they say, uh, on the serverless side is writing those APIs. I can't tell you how many APIs I wrote in SharePoint land where I was talking to some SAP database or some backend database because I wanted to surface it through a web part. And I just needed a simple place where I could quickly deploy an API uh, uh, and make use of it somewhere in my app or quickly write a few lines of code that automate something. Uh, it is worth mentioning, especially uh, for the community of listeners you have that may be in the Office 365 world, one of the things I did want to mention uh, was that uh, Azure Functions actually sits on Azure App Services behind the scenes, like the infrastructure behind the scenes, uh, which is a PaaS platform. Uh, so it's not quite serverless. You still have to have some dials to say, hey, I want so many instances, and these instances should have so much memory. Uh, but you're not managing the underlying uh, infrastructure, hardware, or OS or patching or anything like that, uh, but it actually sits in that platform. Because it sits in that platform, it also inherits some of the features. And one of those features that is really, really helpful is what what is informally called easy auth. And what that is, is that is a way to put a security authentication on top of your API uh, to, to act as a gatekeeper, right? So as soon as you deploy an API in Azure Functions, it's, it's open to the world. There are some patterns that you can use to make it not open to the world, but generally they're open to the world. And a lot of times if you have an Azure Function being called from something like Office 365, you want to make sure that it's an authenticated user. You may want to get that user's context, some other details about that user uh, to, for your API, API to use. Because we have access to Easy Auth and some of the infrastructure that is that is part of Azure App Service, With a few checkboxes, you can put AD auth, uh, you know, AD authentication in front uh, where it's doing bearer token checks, things like that, uh, right in front of your API deployed to Azure Functions and be able to get access to things like that user context and elevated permissions and things like that. Yeah. When I look at that, to me, it's more like, a. I want to say it's almost like a security
1: firewall. I don't have to do the uh, token validation in my code. I can just let the platform handle it. And if it's an invalid token, I never see the request. Right, so yeah, you combine that with the SPAAD HTTP client, and uh, you're you're good to go on that. So awesome. Absolutely. This this has been wonderfully helpful stuff. I really appreciate this. And now, as I kind of mentioned it before, you know, we met at some community event a while ago. So, do you still do uh, community events? You still out there for, for folks can uh, knock on your door?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I am uh, I'm active on Twitter, uh, and I have a uh, Twitter is my no drama zone. Uh, so I keep it for my professional <laughs> purposes. Uh, so I have open DMs on Twitter at Josh Carlisle. Uh, so feel free to DM me anytime if you got some questions. I am also a frequent speaker out there. Uh, So I speak uh, throughout the country, a lot of uh, local community events, area conferences, international conferences. Uh, I think my next scheduled one is I'm at Serverless Days Nashville on the 27th. I think if you're not going now, I don't think you're going to be going because I think they're sold out. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I am also going to be talking serverless down at the Orlando Code Camp, which is actually a Fairly large community code camp down in Orlando uh, in March, and then I got some uh, stuff in Europe this year. So, uh, so pretty active. So, hopefully, if you if you see me out there, definitely uh, definitely grab me and say hi. Yeah,
1: well, again, thanks. This is great, and we'll we'll certainly get uh, some information in the in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. And I appreciate you taking the time and helping uh, helping everybody get up to speed.
0: Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365DevPodcast.com To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. That's all, folks.